Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18. This is a long chapter, and since the uh, focus of my message will be on uh, verses uh, 20 to 40, uh, I'm going to read, start reading at verse 20. But what's important for our purposes at the beginning of the chapter uh, is that a drought uh, has continued to be on Israel, and uh, Elijah has been in hiding from King Ahab, and uh, through an encounter with Ahab's um, one of Ahab's servant, servants, Obadiah, uh, Elijah is connected with Ahab, and there we see in these early part of the, the verses that God has been at work preserving his people, uh, even in the midst of this drought, preserving prophets uh, uh, who uh, worship his name. Uh, but now Elijah comes and he begins to set up this confrontation that we'll read about at Mount Carmel. And so Elijah uh, runs into Ahab and he tells Ahab that he should meet him at Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Queen Jezebel's table. So let's pick it up at verse 20. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God and I call, will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire uh, to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. 
And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sails of seed. And he put the wood in, in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Elijah went up to eat and drink. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Let's go to God and ask for his help now. Oh, Father, we admit that we do not see ourselves clearly. And we also do not see you very clearly. And yet this text will help us with that. We thank you for giving us the Bible so that we might know ourselves more truly and we might know you, the one true living God, more clearly as well. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see where we've turned away, the idols that we've chased, and that we would uh, even more see your gracious, generous heart to idolaters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Wednesday will uh, mark the 45th anniversary of one of the greatest sporting events of all time. It was attended by 60,000 people. It was watched by 50 million people. If you adjust, adjusted the figures to inflation, uh, the event uh, grossed nearly half a billion dollars. 
In the jungles of Africa, two men would stand alone in the ring and vie for the title of the greatest fighter on the planet. The title was dubbed the Rumble in the Jungle, and the combatants were, of course, George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. Now, in the case of Ali and Foreman, both men were not shy about uh, insisting ahead of time that they were, in fact, the greatest heavyweight boxer the world had ever seen. And so, the world watched with great interest to see whose claim to supremacy was actually true. Nothing would reveal this like a direct showdown. And, as the numbers would show, we are fascinated by such head-to-head confrontations. Confrontations that, that seek to answer the question, who's the best? Who's the greatest? Whose skill or, or power can support their claims to greatness? And that's part of the dramatic appeal of 1 Kings 18. It's an epic head-to-head showdown to answer the question, who's the greatest? The Lord or Baal? Whose power can support the claim to undisputed supremacy? Which God is worthy of worship? But the confrontation at Mount Carmel is about more than just proving uh, who is God. To reduce the text to a confrontation between the gods is to only capture half the point. Our passage is more than just a a contest to show uh, who is truly God but it's also a confrontation for the heart. And because of this, we'll not only see who is God, but we will also see who God is, what he's like. In 1 Kings 18, the Lord of Israel answers the prayers of Elijah. He sends fire, and then at the end of the chapter, he sends rain, ending the drought. And he does this to show that he alone is God. And he does it to turn the hearts of his people back to him. In other words, God wants his people to see that he is the only God. He's awesome in power. But just as important, he wants us to see that he is a gracious God who turns wandering hearts back to him. Now, as we approach uh, the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel, it's important to uh, remember that this chapter uh, relates quite closely to the two previous uh, passages that we've studied in 1 Kings. Israel, under uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, had turned from the Lord to worship Baal, as we've said, and Baal was the uh, god of the surrounding Canaanite peoples. And it was in the midst of this uh, apostasy, this turning away from the Lord, uh, that the Lord of Israel was intent to show that he, not Baal, was truly God. And so in the account of Elijah being fed by the ravens, which we looked at, we saw that Baal, who was purportedly the storm god who could send the rains, he was powerless to do anything when God sent uh, a drought. He could do nothing, and we saw that God took idolatry so seriously that he would not only withhold his reign, but he would remove his word in judgment from the land. And then in 1 Kings 17, we saw the power of the Lord, again, contrasted with the powerlessness of Baal. We saw Elijah uh, with the widow at Zarephath in Baal's uh, home territory, so to speak, and we saw that Baal was powerless to provide for the widow who was starving, And we saw that he was powerless to raise the widow's son who had died. But the Lord of Israel could, 
He was showing that he was, in fact, the one true God. And now our passage this morning represents the climax of this collection of drought stories. Here we see, like before, that God takes idolatry incredibly seriously. And we also see the powerlessness of idols, but we also see God's judgment on idolaters and, more remarkably, God's grace to idolaters. So now Elijah summons Ahab, and he summons the 850 false prophets who were on the government payroll to Mount Carmel. Now, to this point in the Elijah account, the contest, uh, the contest between uh, Baal and the Lord had really been implicit, but now we're going to see it's made explicit. Before God would send rain on Israel, he intends to show with unmistakable clarity who reigns in heaven. Now, one of the ways that God is going to do this is uh, through the terms and conditions that he offers for the showdown itself. Now, in uh, presidential politics, one of the biggest stages, of course, is the presidential debate. Uh, It's another example of a dramatic spectacle between uh, two contenders. And the expectation, at least in the minds of some, is that such a a debate, such a contest, will show uh, who's uh, more fitted to be president. Now, if you know anything about presidential debates, you'll know that uh, the terms and conditions of these debates are, are fiercely negotiated ahead of time. Right, leading up to the debate, supporters of, of both parties, uh, they will fight tooth and nail to make sure that, that uh, they have every competitive advantage in hopes that their candidate, otherwise sort of evenly matched with his opponent, will come out ahead. Right? Neither side is going to concede ground because it's considered a neck-and-neck neck race and they can't afford any disadvantage. That, of course, is how you act when uh, things are fairly evenly matched. But that's not the case that we see here. Elijah freely concedes every advantage to the prophets of Baal so that no excuse could be given once Baal is defeated. Look at what we see in our passage. We see that Baal had, had the numerical advantage. There's the whole battalion of, of Team Baal that shows up to this, the 850 prophets, and they're, they're facing off against just one prophet, Elijah. They could offer up more prayers. They could offer their prayers up more loudly. They could be engaged in more religious activity. Baal had the advantage of, of first pick, It's a small detail, but notice in verse 23 that Elijah lets the prophets of Baal pick the bull that they'd want to sacrifice first. These these details really don't matter to God. Baal also likely had the advantage of location. Dale Ralph Davis, one commentator, uh, points out that there there are Assyrian texts that suggest that Mount Carmel had a particular association with the worship of Baal. And so Elijah might have chosen this mountain because uh, it would give the advantage, at least in the minds of some, to Baal. And of course, the contest itself was uh, supposed to be an area of strength to Baal. He was the the fertility god. He sent uh, the rains, he sent storms. Uh, So certainly it would be possible for Baal, if he really wanted to, to hurl some sort of uh, lightning bolt when his reputation was on the line, to send fire from heaven. And more than these advantages to Baal, Elijah consciously disadvantages himself, you'll notice. 
Rather than than raving like a lunatic, Elijah, uh, when it's his turn, takes his time to build an altar for sacrifice. He he digs a trench, and then he orders that water be poured on the sacrifice that's uh, supposed to be ignited by fire. Uh, And he pours so much water on it that, that, that the trench dug out of the parched earth, that that's filled with water. So, with the eyes of Israel glued upon this showdown, the stage was set to show who, without a doubt, the true God is. Now, when the stage is set, the uh, prophets of Baal, they uh, create a ruckus with their fervor. They spend their entire morning crying out to Baal, hobbling around the altar, cutting themselves in hopes that they might attract Baal's attention to their cause. And as they do this, of course, Elijah stands by and offers some help. Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's deep in thought or he's excused himself to go to the bathroom. Or he's taken a trip or he's asleep and he needs to be roused. Okay, that is really funny. And, and yet, uh, you know, we don't want to go so far as to say it's like a spiritual gift of mockery. Uh, but yet, it, this is... This is also tragic, right? This is, this is, this is uh, the lunacy that Israel had given itself over to. These prophets are, are raving and they're cutting and they're clamoring until the sun reaches its highest point and it becomes clear. The idol, which the, the 400 plus prophets of Baal and, and, and the, the prophets of Asherah had promoted, uh, the, the idol which Ahab had Uh, 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 hitched his wagon to, the idol which Israel had become bewitched by, was a total fraud. One of the most important words in this chapter is the verb to answer. It's repeated several times, but nowhere in the chapter does it hang as heavy as it does in verse 29. It's an important verse. There was no voice No one answered. No one paid attention. The author of Kings is underlining for us the utter failure. Baal did not show up. Baal did not speak. He's entirely irrelevant. Based upon the terms and conditions that had been agreed upon, what we see in verse 24, Baal cannot be God. He's a no-show. And so Elijah's up. Now we've already noted the preparations that Elijah made for uh, the contest, and once those were complete, he turns to God in prayer. It's the same response we saw uh, when the widow's son had died. Elijah recognizes that he has no power in and of himself, and so he looks to the Lord. He prays. Now, we'll come back to Elijah's prayer, the content of it uh, specifically, which we see in verse 37 in a moment, because I think that it's the clearest clue to the meaning of this chapter. But for now, I want us to see that Elijah prays and the Lord answers and fire falls from heaven. The fire falls from heaven and it absolutely annihilates the sacrificial site. Not just the bull of the altar, that's not, that's not just burned, uh, but the wood, the stones, the water, gone, all of it, vaporized. And in a blazing, momentous fire pouring down from the sky, it's crystal clear. 
Elijah's God is God. Baal had been established as a hoax, a pretender, a sham. But the Lord of Elijah, he's God. And in just a a beautiful uh, uh, closing note, we see at the end of the chapter that once Baal has been exposed, when his prophets have been done away with, then God sends the rain. This couldn't possibly come from Baal. But as uh, when the fire pours down from heaven, Israel, who's watching, falls down on their faces in an act of worship. Certainly this was in awe. Uh, Almost certainly it was in, in terror because they saw that the God that they had cheated on, the God that they had betrayed, was the only living God, a powerful God. What would it have been like to to be an Israelite in that moment? Not simply to to see the fire falling down from heaven, as, as incredible as that would have been, but then to be instantly stricken with this sense, uh oh. We've we've thrown our allegiance, we've thrown our love, we've thrown our loyalty, we've thrown our worship behind a fraud. But more than that, we've we've thrown them against this God. Would have been a terrifying moment, perhaps. But then look at verse 40. And the people have fallen down on our faces. Elijah then commands the people to seize the prophets of Baal. And he commands that they should be put to death. Now, notice that our passage doesn't indicate that there's anything strange about this. Now, that's because under the, the law of Moses, death was the punishment for false prophets. Deuteronomy 13, verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord commanded you to walk. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the chapter goes on to say that if any of their fellow Israelites were to attempt to try and lead someone astray to idols, or if a a town in Israel was to give itself over to idols, that too was punishable by death. See, false prophets instigated uh, rebellion against God, and they endangered the spiritual well-being of God's people. And so under the law of Moses, they were to be put to death. And so it's for this reason, in accordance with that law, that Elijah puts to death these peddlers of idolatry. Now, to be clear, this is not something we're supposed to do today. Christians do not uh, put to death false prophets or false teachers. There's a difference in how God's people would uh, conduct themselves when they were in the the promised land uh, before the promised Messiah came. Then, God's people, they were a a spiritual community that that existed as a political state, and when Jesus uh, comes, this this changes, right? We, as the people of God, we're not supposed to wield the sword in the same way. The church is, is supposed to fiercely oppose false teachers and false prophets, but we don't do it with the sword, And I say that based on on texts like Romans 16 and Titus 3 and and 2 Timothy 3. All these indicate that now our response to false teaching or false prophecy is not the sword, but it is a spiritual expulsion. It's excommunication from the church. 
Now, that being said, it's important for us if we're to appreciate the grace that's in this text to first, and not pass over lightly, to, to, to notice the severity of God's response toward the prophets of, uh, of Baal. I don't mean severity in the sense that this was inappropriate cruelty, but we need to get, we, we can recognize we're not supposed to immediately uh, or directly apply verse 40, but we need to get something of God's heart behind it. Verse 40 is held out to us as, as a warning about God. God is deadly serious about idolatry. All idol worshipers are objects of God's righteous judgment. That doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. When writing 1 Corinthians, Paul says that idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He speaks in a similar way in Galatians 5 when he says that idolatry is a work of the flesh. It's opposed to the work of God's Spirit and those who practice it will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Or the Apostle John. You, uh, of course, know the, the uh, breathtaking vision of the new Jerusalem as, it, as it, the heavenly city comes down. This is the place where God dwells in perfect fellowship with His people. The place where there's no crying or pain. But then only a few verses later in Revelation 21.8, we read, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, when the prophets of Baal were put to death for their idolatry, this is a, a picture that anticipates that final judgment. A judgment that is even more terrible, more dreadful, more enduring than the one that took place at the brook Kishon. Idolatry is not only futile, it's not only empty, it's not only, it's not only a sham, but in that, the, in that idol worship puts us under the holy anger of God, idolatry is deadly. Now this is important, because in the Bible, idols are not just statues or things that we physically bow down to. Tim Keller, in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, captures the biblical picture of idolatry. When he writes, and I think this, this paragraph is helpful, when he writes that an, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to, uh, to give you what only God can give. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even your success in the Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, if I have that, then I know my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I know I will feel significant and secure. There are many ways, Keller writes, to describe that kind of relationship to something. 
but perhaps the best one is worship. That should hit close to home for us. If idolatry is setting our heart, setting our imagination on the pursuit of anything more than God, seeking to find in some other creaturely thing the satisfaction, the joy, the meaning which only God can give, and if idolatry is deadly, like this scripture teaches, then as it stands, we as idolaters are in a dreadful position. Doesn't matter how cute or how commonplace our idols might be. Uh, we can make uh, idols out of our kids, our comfort, our security, out of being respected by others. Our idolatry is deserving of a condemnation more severe than the prophets of Baal received. There is no such thing as a small idol, a safe idol, an excusable idol. So that's our warning from this text. Our idolatry incurs God's righteous judgment. He hates it. But if all idolatry is met with God's judgment, then our story seems incomplete because we'd have to ask, well, what about, what about Israel? Wasn't Israel guilty of idolatry? Now, didn't Elijah himself in verse 21 note that, that Israel had been limping between Baal and the Lord? Well, God didn't just forget. It wasn't that he couldn't be bothered with dealing with Israel. He wasn't waiting to drop the hammer on them. Instead, God, though he had every right to punish Israel just as he did the prophets of Baal, he was consciously extending his grace to idolaters. Now, there's, there's at least two clues in our text that point this out for us. First, Elijah's prayer, and then secondly, the sacrificial offering. First, look at Elijah's prayer in verse 37. Elijah prays, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah prays that God would answer his prayer, that he would send fire from heaven so that these idol-worshiping people would know that the Lord is God and that he is the one who has turned their hearts back, that he's turned the affections of idolaters back to himself. You know what? God immediately answers Elijah's prayer. He answers, and that's an indication of his desire, that he desires this very thing, that idolaters would have their hearts turned back to him. And the second clue to this is in the sacrificial offering. We're given an interesting uh, note from, from the writer of 1 Kings in verse 31 when we're told that Elijah builds the altar out of the 12 stones that represent the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. So the altar and the offering laid upon it, that's our clue to see them as symbolically representing God's people. And what would take place on that altar was both symbolic of God's judgment upon them, but also his acceptance of them. Now, several times in, in other places in the Bible, fire from heaven is a sign of God's judgment. You can think of a few, perhaps. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, where uh, fire and sulfur rain down from heaven and destroy the cities. Or Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, uh, the high priest, they presumptuously make offerings to God on their own terms, and fire comes from the Lord and consumes them. In Leviticus 10. Or when Korah rebels against Moses in Numbers 16, a part of the judgment on those who rebelled against God's prophet 
was that they were consumed by heavenly fire. See, in the Bible, when, when fire shoots down from heaven, and uh, it, it's a sign of judgment. And when, when we see in, this, in our passage, when the fire shoots down from heaven and it absolutely annihilates the site of the offering, this is symbolic of God's wrath being poured out on the idolatry of his people. The fire of his judgment is being poured out onto that sacrificial offering that represents God's people. So it's not simply the case that God overlooked or forgot about Israel's idolatry, of course, but he chooses to direct his anger toward another place. So the fiery offering represents the the grace of God uh, uh, as he provides a substitute upon which his wrath is poured out. But there's also grace in the fact that God's fire from heaven was to be a sign of his acceptance of his people as they turn their hearts back to him. Just as as fire in the Bible was sometimes a, a sign of God's judgment, it was also a sign of God's acceptance or welcome. When Aaron, the high priest of God's people, he's installed He's to be the representative of God's people who's to enter into God's presence. When, when he's ordained and installed, God sends fire upon the offering there to, uh, uh, and consumes the burnt offering. David, when he uh, builds an offering in, in 1 Chronicles 21, the Lord answers his prayer by sending fire from heaven to consume the altar, symbolizing peace which had been restored between God and David. Or Think of Solomon when he builds the temple for the Lord, the place where uh, God was to dwell in a special way with his people. And he builds the altar there uh, at the opening of the temple. He puts the, the offering on it, and God answers by sending fire from heaven to consume the offering, consume the sacrifice. In each of these cases, God offering fire from heaven was to symbolize that he had dealt with the sin of his people. And he had made a way so that they could uh, approach him acceptably. So God's fiery offering also in our story points to the fact that while judgment has been poured out, the way back to the living God has been established. By this act of judgment, by this judgment poured upon the substitute that represented Israel, and, uh, and by this display of acceptance, God was answering Elijah's prayer. He was was answering Elijah's prayer so that he might show that he was the one who turns God's people back to him, the living God. Now in this way, the showdown at Mount Carmel, of course, takes us by the hand and it leads us to another mountain, Mount Calvary. For there at Calvary, God's judgment against our idolatry would uh, would fall on an offering of his provision an offering that was representative of God's people, Jesus Christ. On him, the offering, the fury of heaven was poured out because of how great the sin of our wandering, idolatrous hearts is. And at the same time, the very fact that this wrath was poured out upon that substitute was the single most important proof to any person that whoever turns from their idolatry can turn back to God and find acceptance and favor. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, wrote about how the men and women there had turned to God from idols to serve the living God. 
and to wait on the Son of God from heaven, whom God had raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. God is the one who does that. He's the one who does that turning. He did it then, he does it in our passage, and he does it today. He's the turner of hearts. All over the world today, at this very moment, God is is taking those who, uh, by nature, are worshipers of other things, and he is turning hearts back to himself. Everyone who's truly a Christian is so because God has orchestrated that by turning our hearts back to him. God takes the the hearts of people who have spurned him, rejected him, people who have willfully uh, settled for cheap imitation gods, and he pursues them. Not simply to expose our errors, say, you dummies, why are you following these empty idols? But he pursues us to take our hearts that have fixed themselves on these life-stealing idols, and he takes them and he sets them on himself. Maybe this morning you're here and you're not a Christian. Well, here's the challenge that this text leaves with you. You are a worshiper. If you're not a worshiper of God, you're still a worshiper of something else. You're giving your life to something. You're giving your money to something. You're giving your time to something. G.K. Chesterton said that when we stop worshiping God, we don't worship nothing, we worship anything. So for you to to put anything else, whether that's self or sex or stuff or family or reputation at the center of your life, it won't satisfy you. But more importantly, you need to know that left unchecked, your idolatry will kill you. But see God in this passage. He's the great turner of hearts, the great pursuer of idolaters. What does it say about God's heart that he, he sees us like the Israelites, blindly, foolishly, giving our lives to things that cannot satisfy, things, something that is deeply offensive to him, and yet he acts to turn our hearts back to himself. And in the cross of Jesus, he gives the ultimate sign that he has dealt with the righteous anger he has against your idolatry and mine so that we can turn to him and be accepted. So could that be what God is doing for you today? that he's telling you to wake up to the emptiness and danger of your idols, that he's even at this very moment turning your heart toward him, that you might find life and satisfaction in him, that you might find his grace and acceptance. Now, if you think that that God might be doing that, please find someone to talk to. Talk to a friend. Come talk to me. That's the good news of this passage, that there is a gracious God who turns the hearts of idolaters back to himself. And this good news is the same good news for Christians. Because as Christians, we are just as dependent upon this good news today as we were when we first believed, when God initially turned our hearts back to him. God's power that first turned our hearts to him is the same power that's needed today because we have hearts that are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. We fix our hearts, we fix our affections on other things. I know I do. So let's not miss this day. This is good news for Christians with wandering hearts. And if we miss this, if we miss how amazing this is, it's because we're not seeing ourselves and we're not seeing our idols clearly. Now, um, I've been, uh, I hope this illustration is helpful, but I've been thinking quite a bit lately about uh, Kanye West. And um, Kanye West uh, has been in the news quite a bit recently, not only because uh, he had a uh, 
new album, which dropped, as the kids say, uh, recently. Uh, but also because uh, Kanye West in recent months has, has come out and said that he's become a Christian. And reports uh, suggest that he's gotten connected with a solid Bible-believing church, that he's meeting regularly with his pastor uh, for uh, Bible study. Uh, he's uh, spoken publicly about the need to repent and have faith in Jesus. He's spoken of his sin. Is this genuine? Uh, you know, I don't know. I hope so. I think uh, we have a, a duty in terms of charity to take him and his pastor at his word. But if it is, we would find it remarkable, wouldn't we? Why? Not because God needs Kanye West. He, he certainly doesn't need Kanye West. He doesn't need his money. He doesn't need his platform. But we'd find it remarkable because here, uh, if you know anything about Kanye West, this, this uh, hip-hop artist, you would know that it's remarkable because in 2013, he was the man who wrote a song called I Am a God, in which he compared himself to Jesus. We find it remarkable because he collaborated with Jay-Z on a song called No Church in the Wild, in which Jay-Z blasphemously referred to himself as Jehovah and likened Kanye to Jesus. And Kanye was one of the faces of this defiant anthem against God. So then to, to hear that same person say, as he did this week, I bow down to the king upon the throne. My life is his and I'm no longer my own. To, to have him admit publicly that he has served the gods of culture and that instead he needs to devote his life to the Lord. If that's true, we would find that remarkable. I mean, that's exciting that God, the turner of hearts, would be able to turn the heart of someone so enslaved to the gods of self and sex and culture and, and that he would have humble, God-exalting praise on his lips. What a miracle that God would do that for Kanye West, right? But family, here's the thing. We can get excited about God uh, doing that in Kanye West's life uh, and, what it, and we can get excited about that because we can see his idols probably more clearly than we can see the, our own idols. That his idols are clearly more dangerous than our idols. But the truth is, the idols of an egomaniacal, sex-chasing rap star are just as serious as the idols of a stay-at-home mom in Hudsonville, a retiree in Grand Rapids, or a pastor in Wyoming, Michigan. Just because we don't see our idols as clearly doesn't make it less of a miracle that God would turn our hearts as Christians back again and again and again to him. We can get caught up worshiping our idols, worshiping our kids, living for sexual pleasure, placing our, all our hope in friendship. And to the extent that those things are what we're living for, they are just as insidious, just as dangerous as what Kanye West had been doing. And we are just as in need of that powerful God, the turner of hearts, to turn our hearts back to him. And that's the good news of this passage. That he does it. He delights to show it. That he can do it. That he will do it. And we're invited not only to, to see and to find our idols, but to, to see God as gracious and willing to receive us. Gracious and willing to turn our hearts back to him. And so let's delight in that God. Let's cry out to him and ask that he would do that more and more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are amazing. You are the God who rules in heaven. You are the God who rules over all the earth. Lord, there are 
No other gods but you. All other gods are pretenders, shams, frauds. And we admit that we are easily taken in by them. So we thank you for a passage like 1 Kings 18 that points us out more clearly that the idols are nothing, you are everything, and that you are a God who delights to turn our hearts back to you. So if, we, if there is someone here today, Lord, who has not done that, who has not bowed the name to Jesus yet, and who has been worshiping the idols of this age, pray that you would do the same miracle here, that you would show them the offering that you've provided in Jesus. You would show them the acceptance that you promised, and you would turn their hearts back to you. And Lord, we pray for us, your people, because we admit that we are prone to wander. We're rebellious. And we need to have our hearts turned time and time again back to you. And it's by your supernatural power that that happens. So do that for us. Free us from the entangles, the, the idols that entangle us. Free us from their wreckage and bring us back to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please uh, stand with me as we sing our song of response? Cast down, O God, the idols. A new song, but set to a familiar tune.
harvest, receive now the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Thank you.